What is population health? Why do some people become sick while others don't? How do we study and what can we do to eliminate health inequities? Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science covers these topics and more. Join us. Aresha Martinez Cardoso from the University of Chicago. Mike Esposito from Washington University in St. Louis. Daryl Hudson, also from Washington University in St. Louis. Twice a month as we discuss cutting edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sick Individuals, Sick Populations. Sleep is often referred to as the third life. Until relatively recently, researchers haven't spent a great amount of time or effort thinking about the effects of sleep or lack thereof on overall health and well-being. Furthermore, sleep quality is greatly affected by social and economic stressors, as most of us know all too well. Considering the widespread racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic inequities in our society, researchers are continuing to document sleep disparities and have examined different aspects of sleep and how those aspects of sleep are related to poor health and health inequities. So today we're really fortunate to be joined by Dr. Dana Johnson, who's an assistant professor of epidemiology at Emory University. Dr. Johnson's research agenda centers on understanding the root causes of sleep health disparities and their impact on cardiovascular disease by addressing the social and environmental determinants of sleep disorders and insufficient sleep and investigating the influence of modifiable factors such as sleep disorders and sleep disturbances on disparities disparities and cardiovascular outcomes. So Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation, Dr. Johnson. I appreciate it. I really appreciate it. Um, and your time, your, your research contribution. So I must admit, this is an area that I'm pretty ignorant to. Um, but I know it's important, especially when I feel like I haven't slept well or haven't slept long, well enough or long enough. Um, so a broad question to start us out, which is how long have scholars been interested in sleep? And if you could talk a little bit about the overall associations between sleep and health disparities that you found. Yeah, so um, it's, it's interesting. I was also a novice until I started studying sleep for my dissertation and uh, learned so much. But sleep has actually been studied for years in both human populations and non-human populations. I think what's more recent is the attention around sleep, sleep research, and particularly sleep disparities. Um, we're really growing and doing more research in sleep disparities over the last few years. And um, also from a um, from the humanities side, there's a lot of research that looks at historical counts of sleep um, dating back to slavery days, mm -hmm. how sleep um, was labeled um, with a stigma and that's where the laziness comes from. Um, and so there's uh, some interesting work by Ben Reese here at Emory University who looks at historical um, accounts of sleep and how that manifests present day. In terms of disparities, uh, sleep in relation to health disparities, this is really the bulk of my work. And so what we've found overall is that, which is similar to other health outcomes, is that racial ethnic minorities 
lower socioeconomic individuals as well as sexual minorities tend to have shorter sleep duration, poor sleep quality, and more severe sleep apnea, uh, which you know, we can talk a little bit more about. It's a common sleep condition. And so what we're finding is that you know, sleep is likely the target, the intervenable target in order to reduce other health disparities. And so there's, um, there's some research that has shown that sleep explains the racial disparity and cardiometabolic health outcomes around 54% of that wow. racial disparity. Uh, sleep duration accounts for it. Uh, there's um, a study from Cardia that shows that uh, the change in blood pressure, so the racial disparity in blood pressure for, they were looking at a five-year change. Um, for black men, sleep duration explains around 84%. And so, right, like these are large um, percentages that sleep is, um, in terms of sleep mediating these uh, disparities. So what I've done in my work is since we know currently that there's this disparity, and again, this, you know, we have to continue to do work to see if this changes and hopefully reduces. But what I do in my work is look at sleep, mainly among African-Americans, the group that's most at risk and also most affected by sleep duration, poor sleep duration. Uh, just to give you an example, data from MESA, the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis, and that data said we see that African-Americans have almost a five-fold higher odds of short sleep duration in comparison to, um, to non-Hispanic whites. So what I've done in my work, mainly in the Jackson Heart Study, is look at how sleep is related to different cardiovascular outcomes. And we have shown that sleep apnea is associated with resistant hypertension among uh, Black populations. And in particular, we see that it is severe sleep apnea that's associated with resistant hypertension. So for both of these, we're talking about people that are you know, at the extremes. And so what makes this even more uh, concerning is that racial minorities are uh, most likely to not have a diagnosis for sleep apnea. So they're most likely to be untreated uh, for these conditions. And so they're undiagnosed. So they're experiencing uh, conditions like sleep apnea, uh, which have effects of daytime sleepiness, it affects our performance and so on, and are not being treated. And so that can likely contribute to these other cardiovascular outcomes that we're seeing, um, adverse outcomes among this population. Yeah, that's super interesting. Such fascinating work. Because I do think that the little that I do know about sleep, or just like anecdotally, we talk about like, the better you sleep, like sort of you're going to eat healthier. If you exercise, you're going to recover better. So it certainly is this sort of mediating pathway between, you know, you're less stressed out and the better sleep you get, you're more well rested, you know, all these things. And it really, I think, is a big part of the story that I don't think we think about, you know, well, right. Yeah, and that's interesting because, you know, even at the start, Dr. Hudson, you mentioned, you know, you can think about how you feel. So, you know, all, although we are, um, we're gaining more information and in doing this research, we can also just think about the way we feel. Like, you know, when you're sleep deprived, that you are more tired, 
typically more cranky, right? <laughs> you know, a little bit more irritable. You know, these things happen. If you're in a job that requires your performance to be optimal, right? If you are, for, if you are a truck driver, if you are in the healthcare industry, a physician, a nurse practitioner, you know, getting that seven or eight hours, which is the recommendation, uh, it's really important. And just to, you know, go back a little bit to what you mentioned earlier about uh, how long we've been doing sleep research. Uh, what's really interesting is that it's rather recent in the last few years that the American Academy of Sleep Me Medicine made a statement about the recommendation for sleep duration across populations. And so you would think that um, we would have had that for years, but, uh, but we have more evidence now connected to health outcomes. So it's great that we were able to make that statement to say, you know, adults who sleep, you know, seven or more hours have better health outcomes. So it's great that we're getting more data to show that yes, this is the target we should have and that's associated with better health. Um, I wanted to dig into your work a little bit more. There's a really interesting concept that you write about when one of your papers called social jet lag. Can you tell mm -hmm. us what this is and how that affects health? Yes, yeah, so social jet lag is a, a very interesting concept. So it's it's the difference in sleep timing between work or and free days. Or if you're a student, you know, uh, if you think about the difference in your sleep between a weekday and a weekend. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean by free days. It's a day that you don't work. And so this is a consequence of the discrepancy between your individual biological rhythm and your daily um, social constraints that you have. And so um, the way that, you know, we, we think about it, it's, it's uh, if you think about jet lag, if you fly across time zones, right, you feel really tired and, and so on. So it's that same idea that you're sleeping the shorter amount during the weekday. And then the weekend you sleep what you would typically if you didn't have to get up for work, for example. So you're sleeping longer on the weekend, but the problem comes that Monday when you have to wake up at a certain time so you can get to work. So you feel, or to school, you feel jet lag. So it's considered a, a chronic stressor and it's been linked, linked to all types of health outcomes, uh, including obesity, diabetes, smoking, excessive caffeine use, as, as you can imagine, right? If you're really tired. Um, and also for students, we see that it affects academic performance. And then it's, it's rather common in our society. So what we consider um, a, um, like a poor social jet lag, it's more than a two hour difference. And so we see about 30% of our um, society here in the US um, experience social jet lag. Wow. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about you all, but I do not play with my sleep. I am in bed and I sleep seven or eight hours because whether it's weekend or during the week, no matter what, what I have to do, because I'm just a poor functioning human being otherwise. And so yeah. I don't mess with my sleep. Well, these comments are getting <laughs> these comments are getting really personal. <laughs> like, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if I don't feel attacked per se, but I, I can certainly say I, I do this social. I had never heard that before. That's a really interesting yeah. concept. The yeah. social jet lag. I've got to watch out for that. 
Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. You, sleep, a consistent sleep schedule, no matter if it's the weekend or a weekday, go to sleep at the same time, wake up at the same time. That is what the literature shows for better health outcomes. Yeah. Okay. I clearly need to make some changes in my life, but I can incorporate <laughs> that a little bit later. So can I can we go back real quick to something that you mentioned earlier, like about the sleep apnea bit, right? Sure. Um, so like, I was wondering, like one, can you just describe a little bit more like what that is kind of for all of us, like kind of non-sleep experts. I think we may have like kind of like a layman's interpretation or understanding of it, but like hearing from the expert would be great. And then also you mentioned like, um, you know, there's kind of disparities in like people in treatment and people that kind of are able to be treated by it. But I wonder, are there kind of population and kind of differences uh, kind of like in incidents, like treated or not, like across this? And if so, like what kind of social factors go into kind of like explaining disparities across populations and kind of just a pure incidence of uh, or the prevalence of um, uh, uh, sleep apnea? Yeah, sure. So sleep apnea is one of the most common sleep conditions. And so it's a condition in which you stop breathing at least five times per hour during the sleep period. And so what, what happens is that the muscles in the back of your throat relax, and then that creates a narrow air passage. And so it closes. And so when you try and breathe in, you're not getting enough air. So that means there's lower oxygen level in your blood. And so there's a message that goes to your brain that basically says, wake up, right? So you can breathe. And so if you watch a video of someone with sleep apnea, or if you've seen someone, you'll see that they, you know, they sit up and you can hear the, the snorting. Uh, they're like a choking sound where they're trying to, to breathe again. And so then they lay down and go back to sleep. But most people that have sleep apnea, again, untreated, are unaware that they're, they're doing this, but they're constantly waking up. So think about this, so that several times, you know, per hour during your sleep period that, that you're waking up choking, trying to breathe. And so um, this affects, it's a, it, it, the prevalence is, is quite uh, wide. So it affects between two and 40% of the population. And it's really dependent on um, many factors. So occupation, for example, we see that some football players that are linebackers, they have a high prevalence of sleep apnea because they have really big necks. Um, we see that sleep apnea is more common among men, also common among um, Asian populations that actually have the highest prevalence of sleep apnea. And some of that is because of the anatomy. And so they tend to have a, arrow, a narrow air passage and then also um, African-Americans, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islanders, and Hispanic populations also have um, a higher prevalence of sleep apnea and tend to have more severe sleep apnea. And so from that disparities piece, what tends to come in a little bit is um, about the, the different determinants are, are, are a bit different. And so what we're finding um, in my work as well as others is that living in environments that are high air pollution that uh, is associated with uh, more sleep apnea. And so air pollution and sleep apnea. And so for example, um, there's, there's a paper that came out not too long ago from Mesa that showed um, in this diverse sample of white, black, 
uh, Hispanic and Chinese individuals, when they looked at sleep, when they looked at uh, air pollution and sleep apnea, it was actually um, only among African American and Hispanic populations, and then also those that lived in lower socioeconomic environments. And then the other uh, symptom of sleep apnea is obesity. And again, thinking about the fat around the airway causing this um, restriction. And so we see that you know, racial minorities and those in lower SES environments are also uh, those that tend to, to have a higher prevalence of obesity, which you know, is, is the, um, relates to the conditions of the environment in some cases, right? So living in areas that are food deserts, having limited opportunities for physical activity, you know, encountering other stressors. So you have maladaptive behaviors um, to, to cope with, with dealing with those uh, different stressors. And so I think I answered your question. It's, it, did I, I answer all of them? Yeah, no, that's great. Okay. That's fantastic. Um, it's kind of a really interesting find in, uh, in those MESA studies that you talked about that it only kind of like the air pollution, sleep apnea relationship, like only emerged among, um, uh, did you say Black and Latinx populations? Or Yes, yeah, correct. Yeah. So what's, right. what's, what's the thinking on that? <laughs> like if there's any, I don't know if like it's explained yet. Yeah, no, I mean, the thinking is what some of this, um, there's, there's evidence showing this that regardless of individual level income, racial minorities tend to live in neighborhoods that are uh, lower than their income level. And this is the result of things like residential segregation from uh, you know, laws of redlining and so on. We have these generational effects that, um, that are still present today, you know, denial of mortgages and so on. So you live in these environments where you're more exposed to air pollution on the, um, your home and ventilation and other practices, you're breathing in these particles that are likely inflaming, ca causing inflammation of the airway that may cause the, the, um, the obstruction and then sleep apnea, for example. And so I talked about how, you know, you have this lower um, uh, oxygen in the blood and so on. So we have linked this to things like cognitive decline and risk of dementia. So sleep apnea is a very serious condition um, that can increase your risk for dementia. Yeah. Everyone should see our faces. She said, you stop breathing. When you sleep, we were all like, what? <laughs> like we it, it is serious. It is yeah. serious. Yeah. 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 In this last 10 seconds. So let me, you know, let me put it in context a bit. You know, you're not, so it happens and it's happening regularly and it's about a 10 second experience. So it happens quickly that you, um, that your brain signals you to wake up and, you know, you take a breath and you lay back down. But, you know, to also put that in context for some of the, our work that we're doing, we saw like among a nine, um, 900 African-Americans in Jackson, Mississippi, that almost 70% had sleep apnea. And then when we looked at moderate or severe sleep apnea, which is uh, when this happens at least 15 times per hour of your sleep period, which, you know, could be anywhere from four to, you know, 10 hours, um, it was even more common of around 34%. 
So this is, you know, something that is really affecting a lot of people and that are untreated. And that, and again, if we can treat that, which we can with CPAP and other um, treatment strategies, we could potentially reduce these other subsequent poor health outcomes beyond cardiovascular, even thinking about cognitive outcomes. Yeah. Oh, super important. And again, I don't feel attacked, but um, <laughs> definitely getting the, we knew this was important, but I didn't, I didn't quite have a full understanding of just how prevalent some of these conditions are and what the impact could be for, for overall population health and fuel and health inequity. So this is really fascinating. And something you mentioned um, just a moment ago in one of your responses was about um, physical activity and mm -hmm. these other kind of health behaviors. So I was kind of curious about, cause you hear, you know, if you're reading a, a popular culture outlet, like a magazine, or if you're scrolling mm -hmm. through Instagram or something like that, they'll say, you know, for keys to better sleep, you know, reduce your alcohol consumption and exercise, you know, a certain amount of hours per week and all those things. Is that, is that shown to be effective in terms of promoting quality sleep? Um, is there any evidence that these kind of modifiable health behaviors could reduce sleep and health inequities? Yeah, that's a really good question and also a really good uh, target for research for anyone that's looking at, um, you know, an area. Uh, so what, what we know is that timing matters. So yes, engaging in physical activity, having a healthy diet, sleeping better. Yes, we know that that's related to better health outcomes, wellness, you know, feeling better, uh, better quality of life, right? But what the, in thinking about them together, these different health behaviors is that timing matters. And so you mentioned alcohol. So for example, engaging in alcohol or having out consuming alcohol or nicotine within a certain amount of bedtime. And so um, I've seen between two to four hours uh, some of the work that we have done has shown four hours. If you engage in these within four hours of bedtime, you will have more fragmented sleep. And so engage, you know, consuming alcohol, um, some people say, oh, I fell asleep right away. Yes, you may fall asleep right away, but you'll also wake up during the night more often if you have it close to bedtime, right? Mm -hmm. And so also large meals, and then um, physical activity, timing also matters. So yes, physical activity can help you sleep better, but physical activity during the day. This is not something you wanna do close to bedtime because think about think about how you feel after you exercise, right? Like your, your adrenaline is pumping a bit, your heart rate is going, it'll be hard to initiate sleep right after that. So when you're going to sleep, you wanna put yourself in a more relaxed state, right? So these, um, these different modifiable health behaviors of like physical activity and diet, yes, very important, but the timing of it matters. Uh, and so doing those during the day. And then diet and sleep, particularly sleep apnea, has a very um, cyclic relationship, so to say. And so, you know, what I mean by that is that you have to sleep a certain amount to have um, for your hormone secretions and so on. So for our home, our hormones that are connected to our drive for hunger and 
feeling satisfied. This all happens during sleep. So when we sleep, we're actually very active physiologically, right? There's, mm. there's important things that are happening. And so when you have, um, when you condense your sleep period, so when you're sleeping a short period of time, those hormones get out of sync. And so what tends to happen is that people overeat, you know, that, that the decision-making also is impaired. So when you're tired, and again, this is something not to get personal, but this is something we can think about when you're tired, you're like, let me, let me just go grab this from the drive-through. You're not usually like, I'm going to go grill some chicken and make, you know, a salad. You know, just our decision-making is a bit impaired when we're sleep deprived. And so, um, but it, you know, it works both ways also, like in terms of if you are, you know, obese, that can also contribute to sleep apnea. So that exposure outcome can go back and forth between uh, sleep and, and diet. But, you know, these are all really connected and some really interesting um, research that that is merging is thinking about you know, what happens at the cost of the other one. So is it better to, you know, if you're tired, should you just sleep? Or is it better that you do some physical activity and try and get some sleep? So that balance of them is, is what we're trying to understand more about uh, if you compromise one, what is the, the, um, the, the effect of it? But um, ideally, if we were, you know, in a perfect world, you know, we would have our opportunity to engage in physical activity early. Yeah. And, and I don't know how this, I'm, I'm trying not to get personal. I don't know how the alcohol consumption can work. If you, <laughs> if you have a later day, you get off work late, you have to do it before four hours of that gauge on the weekends. Uh, but, um, but it's important to think about the timing of these in, in all seriousness. Yeah. So, it just does not seem to be enough time of the day. I hope the research says that you should sleep and, you know, skip the physical activity so I don't have to begin that <laughs> You know, to get personal because I tend to choose the sleep over the, over getting to the gym, but, you know. Um, you know, we were talking about things like exercise, alcohol, consumption, you know, healthy eating, and we know that those aren't equitably distributed across populations. So, um, we wanted to think about how uh, health and healthy behavior are really influenced by context, you know, the environments where people live, work, and they play. So what are some of your thoughts about the ways that the social and physical environment need to be augmented to promote some of these good health behaviors that we know assure sleep, or even just directly sleep? So, you know, we can think about noise pollution, right? So Absolutely. what is the work say these days around some of these social and physical environments um, and even interventions, right? Like what would be a sleep intervention from a social determinant to health perspective? Yeah, yeah, great question. So this is actually the bulk of, of my research is looking at neighborhood contexts in relation mm -hmm. to sleep. And so there are some positive aspects of a neighborhood that we know um, have a beneficial uh, effect on sleep. So for example, individuals who live in neighborhoods with that they report um, have higher levels of social cohesion and are more safe. They sleep between 10 to 15 minutes longer on average, and that's objectively measured sleep. So if we think about subjective reports, it would be even longer. Mm -hmm. And so we know if you are in these 
better social environments, you will actually sleep longer. And so we have also evidence that shows from the other side of it that people who live in neighborhoods that are more violent, have um, more crime, that have more that it's associated with poor sleep quality and shorter sleep duration. Now, in thinking about the policy piece of this, um, it, it gets a little bit um, more co complicated. So we have a paper that we published a few years ago in AJE, uh, the American Journal of Epidemiology, where we looked at the built environment and sleep. And so going into this paper, uh, my hypothesis was that um, if you lived in a built, you know, a, a great built environment, it would be associated with better sleep outcomes. Um, for many reasons, you know, perhaps it would promote more physical activity mm -hmm. and, you know, that's associated with better sleep as we talked about. But actually there's some other components of it that would be negative. And that's actually what we found in this paper. So people who lived in environments that were more walkable and had more uh, dense intersections and a higher population density, it was actually associated with uh, worse um, sleep quality and shorter sleep duration. And similar to those other uh, studies I talked about earlier, this finding was particularly um, relevant to African-Americans and Hispanic individuals in this, this, um, in this study. And so again, the environment across studies we're seeing is most salient for the sleep of African-Americans and for some Hispanic Latino subgroups. And so, um, so of course, I'm sure you're wondering like, why would that be? Why would living in these environments? So we actually found that noise, you wow. know, partially explained the finding. And so you have to think about that as you're designing these, um, these different environments. So yes, walkability is great, but what is the trade-off, right? So usually what we're seeing is that there's more social destinations. Um, so if you live in, you live somewhere like New York, you might live above a restaurant, a, you know, club nearby. So it's promoting, promoting noise. And so what, what would be the answer is more of a housing intervention, right? So having something like soundproof windows, having proper ventilation, insulation, and so on, that you're blocking, you know, some of the negative um, uh, features of the outdoor environment. And that's the same, you know, for, for thinking about like the intersection density. So for the walkability noise. So we think about places with more intersections, um, especially the, I live here in Atlanta, uh, we rank like number two in air pollution from um, vehicles. And so you have more traffic. And so you're promoting again, more air pollution. People are breathing in these particles, inflammation, you know, occurs from that. And now we're talking about increasing risks of sleep apnea. So, you know, the suggestion is, you know, to think about these different things and it kind of, it goes hand in hand if you're thinking about how individuals are nested within households, which are nested within neighborhoods, we can't just target one, right? If we're going to improve that larger context of the neighborhood, we also have to think about what's happening in the housing environment that, that can help. Um, and so just to give you another example, if we think about um, those that may be in public housing or lower income areas, lighting is typically used to deter crime. And usually that's a good thing, right? 
but think about the sleep. So if you are, um, let's say you don't have blackout shades, which are expensive, you are getting inopportune light at a time that uh, you should be asleep, perhaps, if the light is happening during the sleep period. And so that is going to, um, that's going to affect the, the person's sleep cycle. So we have to consider uh, that as well in, in, in uh, trying to design um, interventions. So shields, there are things that can be done in order to protect the individual. I'm even thinking like around the corner, they're putting in, I, I'm in Chicago, like a mixed used, mixed use housing complex, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, part of it is the lower level is a lot of like retail, right? And then the upper level is apartments. And the idea is that like, if you create this like integrated live work, mixed income place, right? But maybe in, in building those, the insulation or the window requirements have right. to be even, right? Even if it's more expensive, it like improves the quality of the housing, right? And it helps people have this more, in, you know, we think about these like integrated live workplaces or like the panacea for, you know, some of these neighborhoods that have been disinvested. But right. if we don't think about their sleep, no one's gonna wanna live up, you know, or right? Yeah. Like, no one's gonna wanna live above the restaurant or the gym Absolutely. or the whatever. Yeah. There's, there's a trade off to consider. And, you know, even thinking about just going downstairs to grab your food as opposed to going down the street, you're also reducing your physical activity too. Mm -hmm. You know, if you are, if everything is immediately right in front of you. But this is the way in which our society is moving to this. Yeah fast, convenient, you know, lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. Just see. Oh, so many things to consider. Um, but I guess that's why we self-select into these fields, right? Um, <laughs> right. The elusive answer for, for uh, these many different challenges. So uh, a challenge that we think a lot about on our podcast and I think in the world that we live in right now is the, the issue of racism. And we're kind of curious about how you and other scholars in this subfield think about the effects of racism on sleep. Yeah, it's a really, really good question. And this is something that um, in the sleep world, we're a bit behind on, to be honest. And so we're starting to see more papers more recently. There's been a, a few years um, at, um, with us looking at discrimination and sleep, but with specifically testing racism, um, we're just now starting to see, and I'll just briefly say, you know, there's some, some great, uh, work that it's occurring. There's, um, some evidence that shows that racism is associated with insomnia, which is another common sleep condition in which there, um, is a problem either initiating or maintaining sleep. And then uh, one of my doctoral students, uh, she has a paper that we've recently submitted and she presented at um, the conference with looking, so Izzy McKinnon, um, where we we're looking at, and we found that direct experiences of racism, including those that are particularly violent, were associated with poor sleep outcomes. And so what, and we're also doing focus groups to understand that more. And what people are telling us is that they have these encounters and, and they're thinking about it at night when they lay down. So that rumination period. Yeah. So they're thinking about it, thinking about how they should have responded to the situation. Mm -hmm. And then that is affecting, 
you know, their sleep. So that's how people are describing it from our qualitative work. Yeah. And that's really fascinating. I think that's um, right spot on with where the science needs to go, at least in my humble opinion, in terms of thinking about rumination and thinking about how people may not even have directed, directly experienced the instance of racial discrimination, but right. it's this this like vicarious discrimination as I, I keep on seeing other scholars describe it, where you're concerned about people in your network within a broader subpopulation about these. And everything is so easily accessible through social media and mm-hmm. you hear about things in different cities. So um, that's really fascinating and really interesting to see how those instances are, are related to, to sleep for sure. Right, um, and think about how that also causes anxiety, which mm-hmm. we know is associated, that affects our sleep. And so when you're thinking about, you know, your family member leaving, especially, you know, at the height of seeing the police brutality and so on on the news, you can think about that could mm-hmm. be my brother, that could be, you know, mm-hmm. my husband, that could be my sister, you know, that could be someone that I care about and that causes anxiety and then again going back to that timing if you're looking at these things you know at the end of your day when you're in bed you know watching it on your phone that's gonna cause a reaction yeah Yeah, absolutely yeah and the multiple levels that Mm -hmm. racism works right whether that be your personal experiences like this this more structural level like how they operate in tandem which i think more race scholars of health are, are doing um how it applies to sleep, I think is still unanswered questions. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So thinking about that for your own work and for the field, um, you know, what are you working on next? And where do you think researchers, practitioners, policymakers should be thinking about to improve sleep quality and sleep duration? We're curious what's cooking. Yes. So, um, so I'm an epidemiologist by training. So a lot of my work has, you know, really focused on doing these observational studies, but um, I'm actually moving more to doing uh, interventions. So really trying to leverage um, the work that the, the knowledge we've gained from doing these different observational studies and putting them into Uh, practice, so to say, right, by um, interventions. So what we have learned is that stress and the environment are particularly important for the sleep of racial minorities, who again are those that are most affected by um, short sleep duration and poor sleep quality. And so um, what what we're doing now, pilot intervention where we are, um, we're doing a mindfulness-based stress reduction um, intervention. And so we have participants um, go through mindfulness activities for about 10 or 15 minutes every day before sleep. And so we're looking at that in terms of being able to, you know, reduce uh, that rumination period. And so um, findings are to come. We'll see. We just finished and enrolled our, our last participants. So we're, we're analyzing that now. And we collected um, their sleep using an objective measure of sleep. So we did ectography is what it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did that for 30 days. And so mm-hmm. we'll have a, a really good idea um, of that. And the other um, piece or the other um, thing that we're focusing on uh, is housing. And so we're, we're doing work where we are measuring and trying to identify what are you know, the factors 
or features within our homes that are either promoting or hindering our sleep and thinking about how to intervene there. And just to give you um, just a small preview from an intervention I was involved with in Boston, um, we have a list of sleep hygiene recommendations in the field, uh, which are things like sleep in a quiet and dark you know, environment. This is best for your sleep. But from our focus groups, you know, we had people tell us, I cannot sleep in a quiet, dark environment because someone may break into my home. Mm -hmm. And so what we're trying to do now is understand what can we do, right? So I feel it's on, um, it's the responsibility of us as researchers and clinicians to be able to, you know, give suggestions on how to uh, implement these different hygiene recommendations. And so for us, that may be, perhaps we can put a light in the hallway, you know, that's not you know, within the bedroom or, you know, using timers on the television or just thinking through some of these other ways in which uh, we can help people promote their sleep. Or maybe if you have this light on, you actually wear a mask. So what we're trying to do is see how effective these are, see how amendable um, people are to to these different uh, recommendations. And so, so that's what we're doing within my research group. And then in terms of uh, policies, there's so much that can be done. And so one thing that is actually on Healthy People 2030 as a goal and thinking about our young people is delaying school start times to no earlier than 8.30 yeah. a.m. And so uh, it's amazing how early some children wake up in order to get the bus, especially their bus across town to get to school. And then you want them to perform at 7.30, you know, for a test. And we literally have, um, you know, data that shows if you give kids, you know, a test at 10 a.m. without additional opportunity to learn from like taking it at 8 a.m., they -hmm. perform better. And so it just means they're more awake. And so Mm -hmm. if we can... And so we know academics is so important for our future, our trajectory of success. So, you know, that's one important thing that um, I think is, is something that that must be done is, is delaying these school start times in terms of policy. And there's communities that have done this. We just need this to happen uh, across um, all places. And then, you know, regulating noise. Um, pollution, for example. So there's actual laws about what time people can start mowing their lawns. Mm -hmm. And people may not be aware of this, but we have Mm -hmm. to make sure people are. So something else we can also think about is regulating the different um, noise um, ordinances that are within neighborhoods. So there are certain times that um, people can mow their lawns. So it can't be Mm -hmm. before you know, whatever time that a city has set. So people should be aware of that and we should make sure um, it's regulated. And then also, you know, improving neighborhoods. So we have to make sure that we're doing what we can to make sure manufacturing plants, for example, are being compliant in terms of what's being emitted into the environment and the times. And um, also um, if we're in areas like LA and Atlanta and thinking about traffic, you know, doing what we can to promote um, having um, uh, carpools and public transit so we can reduce the amount of air pollution, um, traffic related air pollution. 
And so those are just a few examples, but there are uh, definitely important targets. And then I would even say like on a community level, uh, there's certain things we can do in terms of like awareness of sleep hygiene recommendations and also healthy sleep practices. So I often see on the news um, or during commercials see about symptoms of stroke. Uh, there was a large campaign around know your numbers for high blood pressure. Most people know what that looks like, but you know, few people know what healthy sleep practices are, how much sleep they should receive, or you know, what symptoms are for different sleep disorders. And so this is a public health initiative that, um, that we could take on where we have campaigns around uh, you know, knowing about healthy sleep practices, knowing symptoms for sleep disorders. So you can discuss that with your primary care physician and be referred to a sleep clinic if needed. Thank you so much for all the insights in this important area. And we have quite a few people who are in the world of research and especially junior scholars and postdocs and students. And we're kind of curious about, you know, just from a non research perspective, but just how do you, because I've noticed in, in your CV and the interesting work that you're doing, you have worked with some incredible people. And so just kind of curious about how you've gone about cultivating this network of collaborators. And I think that'd be really beneficial for people who listen in. So how have you, you know, developed and managed your collaborations? Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the, my first recommendation is, um, just talk to people, right? Like we're, well, you know, right now we're, we're in this virtual <laughs> world, but we're going back to, you know, in-person conferences, but, um, you know, during my, when I was a doctoral student, I think that's really where a lot of this started, where um, I worked with um, uh, large research groups um, where I trained under Ana de Rue at Michigan, and she had a grant to MESA, um, the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis. And so through that, I met a lot of people. I engaged in research meetings, and then I was able to um, write a supplement to do some similar work in the Jackson Heart Study. And so I made sure I took advantage of these opportunities where I could be in the same room with, you know, some of these uh, different leaders and, um, and I could collaborate. And so for some people, I've reached out to them to say, hey, I hear you have this data set or I saw your publication and I attached that publication. You know, are you willing to share the data? Can we collaborate? And I've, I've actually never had anyone say no. Most people yeah. are like, yes, please write a paper to my data set. They, they want the, inter the information to be disseminated. So, um, so yeah, I, I highly recommend, you know, just reaching out to people, learn about their work and ask about, you know, opportunities to, to collaborate. And that can only help you, uh, not only in your career, but also help you in learning about um, these different data sets, different ways in which people conduct their research, uh, which are, you know, really important. Thank you so much. And again, we really appreciate your time and contributions to this world that's really fascinating, really important, this third life, quote unquote, third life that we engage in. Um, lots of different things for me and, and hopefully the, the co-host and the listeners to consider. So after all that, that talk about sleep, I think I'm going to go and contemplate taking a nap. 
Um, <laughs> as long as for, it's within eight hours of your bedtime, you can well, no more than eight hours within okay. bedtime for a nap. And Got it. only 15 to 20 minutes. Oh, wow. Okay. Some some parameters there. So I'll There's be mindful of, of <laughs> nap time for sure. But Dr. Johnson, we really appreciate you for joining us today and educating us um, about your work and the the broader field and the importance of it. And as always, we're grateful to our listeners for joining us today. We'll see you next time at Sick Individuals, Sick Populations.